The Sex Ed with Tim podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty, signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. You're listening to Sex Ed with Tim. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. I'm your host, Tim, certified sex educator. I identify as a chaotic homosexual. And how does a woman scare a gynecologist? By becoming a ventriloquist. To- <laughs> I know. God awful. No. Oh my God, that's great. <laughs> oh my God. I mean... I hope that the, that lands on the audience. Right. <laughs> Move my lips without talking. Um, God. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, and those who have yet to decide, that beautiful laugh, that beautiful seductive voice that you hear on the other end of the mic is the author of Memory Mansion. Please welcome to the show, Shaman Isis. Isis, hey, how Tim, are you doing? Hey, Tim, what's up? Thanks for having me. I am absolutely elated that we are talking right now because I when you when you came into my inbox and then I did a little bit of a Google search and everything, I was like, oh my God, Queen. Hello. <laughs> Makeup on point. Energy is pure. It is giving like Ooh, like it's mother, you know, it's giving mother. <laughs> That's funny because in the orphanage I grew up in the kids used to call me mother. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, it was sweet. Oh my God. Like the kids that the other were kids your age? Were, they were, yeah, well, we were kind of like all, in this, we were all kids. <laughs> so yeah, we were a mixed bag of, of ages and, you know, different heights. You don't really know specifically what ages, so they were different. Okay. Ages. No, I loved that. But uh, you, so you said orphanage and I'm still kind of locked into that. <laughs> and holy crap. Uh, when I did a really quick search of your book, you mentioned that in Memory Mansion, you used your experience in the orphanage as like the foundation of this book. Before we get into that, how about you tell the audience who you are? Give us your down low. Sure. I'm a author and mindfulness educator, Shaman Isis, and I have written a new book called Memory Mansion, How to Glow the Fuck Up, which shares my my personal journey Uh, in a Tennessee orphanage in the 70s, where I had to deal with a human trafficking ring and eventually ran from, I ran from Tennessee. Sorry, my eyes just went when I heard human trafficking. There's some surprises in the book where I had to run from a human trafficking ring. And um, I spent a really long time running first from them because they they really made my childhood quite terrifying. Although it was quite beautiful and adventurous as well. Like, I don't want to make it sound when people hear you grew up in an orphanage, they they tended like, oh, and I'm like, but I've had an amazing life. Like, I regret nothing that's happened in my life. Uh, anyway, I ran away to New York City with some help from a friend of mine in the FBI in the 90s, and I made up a name so I could get lost in the city in the 90s, and I fell into this extraordinary career as a, a publicist and 
the fashion and entertainment world and had this incredible career all while pretending to have this completely normal life but not using my name and telling no one anything about myself. And finally, one day, a really, really long time later, I woke up to the fact that I had been really depressed for a very long time and overweight. And Memory Mansion sort of shares that whole journey and how I finally learned how to glow the fuck up amazing so i have locked into a few words that you have said uh my eyes are kind of like going whoa right now so uh (laughs) first of all uh your experience in the orphanage and how did that play into the book i wanted to share so the, the name of the book is memory mansion when uh, for a very very uh, good reason when i was a child i wanted to be able to remember all the good and bad experiences that i had because i i i was very aware at a very young age when you grow up with a lot of trauma you tend to become an adult very young and so my observations of the the people around me and the situations were very sort of adult for, for such a young child And um, when I sat down to write the book, I was trying to bring people into the experience that I had so they could see, you know, how I ended up where I was and why I ended up changing my life and and how people who deal with secrets and shame can actually learn to love themselves and recover. And so um, when I was a child in the orphanage, I decided to build a mansion in my mind and store all of my beautiful and tough experiences because I wanted to remember them in great detail. And so that's what I did. And then years later, when I became um, a success in the fashion world, I was very terrified of people finding out my real story because I, I thought it made me look like a fraud. Like, who is this woman? She doesn't have a college degree, but somehow she became a success. And so I, I kept it all very secret. And then when I finally decided to share the truth, I opened up Memory Mansion. And that's one of the reasons why I call it that. And um, discussing the orphanage is really just setting up how I ended up dealing with the situation that I dealt with later on. Mm-hmm. It's basically like categorizing or sorry, not that's not the word I'm looking for because I, I have done the same thing when I was an escort, uh, though I always forget the word. So I have it like written down on a post-it. It's compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I was doing as compartmentalizing. And I wanted people to sort of understand, like, how does a woman get to be that age and no one knows anything about her and she's terrified, you know, why, you know, what could have led to somebody becoming so secretive for such a long time. And so I think that, that, that really helps. And I wanted it to be fun to read, you know, I was like, how do I share this story without putting people into tears all the time? <laughs> how do you make trauma entertaining? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's why it's, I call it the self-love um, memoir that reads like a thriller because it, it, it was very thrilling experience to have. I've had an incredible life. Mm. Do you call this book autobiographical, semi-autobiographical, a work of fiction? Oh no, it's a yeah, it's a hundred percent true story. It's my memoir. Uh, it's the self-love memoir that reads like a thriller. Uh, as a way, that was the only way I could sort of like how to, you know, and when I sat down to write it, I wanted to be authentic to my own creative process and not try to write a book that fit into a category. Um, which I think is a, a mistake. A lot of writers, you know, trying to shove their writing into what somebody's decided was marketable probably 20 years ago or even longer. Pigeonhole it. Yeah, pigeonhole it. And I just, I just wrote it. And then I, when I read through it, I was like, wow, this, this sounds like an adventure story, you know, and a self-love story at the same time. And so that's, um, that's how that unfolded. When it came to writing the book, where did you think was it? was a good place to start the story. And like you said, the orphanage, why start there? Hmm. Because I went into the orphanage at such a young age. How old? 
uh, oh, I was just a couple of years old. Wow. Yeah, I like was a toddler. Really young. Yeah, I was very wow. young. And and I remember it quite well. I remember how upset my mother was when she took us there. I knew my mother, unlike a lot of the kids that grew up in an, uh, an orphanage in foster care, I actually knew my mother from childhood and had a lot of understanding. I mean, the, her generation of women that had children without a father in the picture were treated horribly by society. Mm. Mm-hmm. I bet. Ugh. So what were some of the experiences from the orphanage that you've put into the book? Oh, you know, I, um, when the nuns, because it was a Catholic orphanage, uh, when, when oh, the nuns fun. Would, oh, I know, right? I shared <laughs> some ass beatings. Yeah, when you yeah. put Catholicism into the mix, it's always yeah. going to be traumatic, honey. Right. Oh, <laughs> you're so Catholic right about right that. Here. <laughs> um, I share a lot of my intuitive experiences that happen because I've been an intuitive from as far back as I can remember. One of my first life memory is actually helping my mother deal with an, a medical emergency. She was having a miscarriage, and I came awake knowing that she was in serious need. I'd had a dream about it. So I share a lot of those intuitive experiences Um which I think are just energetic experiences. We're we're all we're all tied to each other. We're all connected to each other and everything around us. So, um, I share some of those. I share some of the adventures of running around Memphis on my own as a kid. That was just like I was a rule breaker from the from the get go. <laughs> Damn rebel! Uh, yeah. So wow, amazing. I am also still very much locked in to the fact that you said human trafficking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I am very, like, you know, as a sex educator, this is something that I handle a lot uh, when it comes to, like, my clients who have tried to escape human trafficking and successfully. But I was wondering if you would share some of the experiences that you were like, how did you even get into that and how you got out? Well, I was really lucky. That sounds crazy, but... Um, when I was young, and like I said, I had intuitive experiences, I um, I was fortunate to escape uh, the attempts that were made. My sister was not. We were both in the same orphanage. You know, she eventually went on to become a, a, a street prostitute and a really serious drug addict, a crack addict, because this was, you know, the, the 70s and the 80s. I, my way of dealing with being followed and escaping multiple kidnapping attempts and hiding when bad men would come sorry to say men, but that's just the truth. Although no, I want to gross. Ugh, uh, yeah. For the, I will say for the record, one of the reasons why I didn't, I don't think I became a man hater was because I saw how, how complicit a lot of women were in some bad behavior. And it really, and I was glad I saw that as a, a child because it helped me understand that things were more complicated than they seem. So, because everybody's affected by the patriarchy. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Man, oh. woman, everyone. Yeah. And I think I talk about that pretty, that's sort of a thread that runs through the book that a lot of the things that happened to the women in my family wouldn't have happened if we didn't live in a patriarchy. Right. And listeners, for the record, Isis and I are not man haters. Some of our closest friends are men. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I love men. And I think that they deal with their own uh, issues related to the patriarchy, especially the younger generations now who are trying to break out of a lot of that. I was um, unfortunate enough to end up living with one of the men who was a part of this human trafficking ring in high school. I had I had known him since I was a young child, and I knew something was off, but I couldn't quite understand what it is. I go into this in the book. My sister, on some level, kind of protected me there. You know, he watched me all of the time, had me followed. It was really, you know, I talk about it. Uh, it's a thread that runs through the book, like how I dealt with this constant being spied on and uh, being saved for someone. Um, and uh, my sister not being so fortunate, um, she eventually died from complications related to the being being trafficked at a young age. 
Anyway, I ran, I ran away. She became a drug addict and prostitute, and her life was really tragic. And I ran off and changed my name and just kept running for the next 30 years <laughs> because I, couldn't, I didn't want to face um, the things that I had experienced growing up, and I didn't want to talk about it at the time. I just wanted to live. Right. And you're on the road for 30 years? Holy crap. <laughs> I can't imagine. Like, you were, what, on the road as young as a teenager? And oh, no. I was, I was 18 or 19 when I finally decided that I was going to take off. And then they I moved to California, and they found me in California, and I changed my name again. And that's when I reached out to the FBI and asked for help in figuring out how to disappear. And that's when I ran to New York City. And this was the 90s. So hiding, you know, things were very regional back then. You, you know, living in New York City was like being in a foreign country. And so I, I was able to just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it really was. I mean, Wild. this is pre-social media, pre-Google, mm-hmm. pre-internet. And uh, I was able to just sort of like go to New York City and reinvent myself. And I, of course, I got older and I, my looks changed. and um, But I was still dealing with the shame and the... The, the fear, there was a lot of fear there because I had dealt with being tr- followed and, and spied on for such a long time that I didn't realize that that had created a, a complex post-traumatic stress disorder in me that I wouldn't deal with until I was in my 50s. Anyway, yeah, one day I woke up and I was like, okay, girl, you're fat, you're pissed, and you need to deal with the stuff that you've grown up with, with and you need to start talking about what you actually went through because you're not going to heal and become a person that can create happiness in her life unless you actually begin to speak about these things. Wow. Giving yourself some tough love there. <laughs> yeah, I did. That was in 2019. I, I had a long 2019. conversation. Oh yeah, my 2019. God. I looked in the mirror and was like, okay, you've never used your real name. Sure. You've kind of like, you've gotten older, you know, nobody's going to come hunting you down um, uh, at this point. Well, at least I didn't think they would um, because I was no longer, you know, a teenager and, and all of that stuff. But you know, it's hard to let go of that fear it's hard to explain to other people unless you've dealt with being, you know, in abusive situations or people taking advantage of their power. Did you realize that you were being trafficked? You know what? That's an interesting story. I knew that, I mean, I, I could have described the situation to anybody in, in, in how horrific it was, but I didn't actually realize that it was considered human trafficking because I thought of that as something that happened in a foreign country. I didn't think of it as something that happened in America. And I was in a car with Mira Sorvino, And my sister was dying of cancer that was related to being a prostitute. It was something that was curable uh, at one point. And I was telling her a little bit. I had never really shared with anybody, but at that point I was really dealing with a lot of trauma and I was trying to figure out my mother had died, my sister was dying, and I had gotten divorced and I was just like reeling. And I shared a little bit with her, but I made it about my sister. And she said, do you realize that your sister is a victim of human trafficking? And I, I remember that I turned white as a ghost and I got very sick and then that night I got absolutely blitzkrieged because I was, it was, it was fucking with my head. I was like, Oh my God, I, I don't, why did I never label this situation? Like I knew I was running from bad men and I, they were bad men for years, but I didn't label them as what they appropriately were until I got older. And that was, that was 10 years ago, but it still took me 10 years to, to face Process. up to it. Yeah. Yeah. It took me 10 years to, to heal enough to be able to say, okay, girl, you've got a, you got a foundation. It's time for you to learn how to, to glow the fuck up. Oh, and that's the subtitle of the, of the book. Oh, I love that. Now, 
when you were in this situation, like you were just what picked up off the street by these awful men? No, you know, I was in an orphanage and so they knew where we were. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I they, talk about that. Were... They were showing up in the middle of the night. Mm, okay. Uh, do you mind if I ask what they made you do? Oh, I was, no, trafficked? no, I was very fortunate. I did not have, I was never raped. I was, I was spied on. I was followed. Um, I had to deal with several instances of being physically grabbed and, you know, trying to, someone trying to assault me, my stepfather, I'm mean, a stepfather, my foster father, my stepfather never even had one of those. My foster father trying to do uh, things, he kept trying to sneak into my room, but I was really, really fortunate that I was never uh, raped like my sister. Oh my God, I'm sorry to hear that. No, no, no. I mean, it's. It, I was just sister. glad to find out, really, you know, to be able to put the whole thing together. Because for a long time, which I write about in the book, I didn't understand what was going on. I actually thought it was because I had visions and I was intuitive. I was like, oh, they must know that I see things. <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't know. I was like, I didn't know enough about uh, things to think, oh, they want to take me for, for that. You know, I was like, oh, it's maybe they know I see things. Now, you use the word intuitive very interestingly. Did you know what was happening and how you came to the conclusion that, oh, I am an intuitive? Yeah. At a really young age, I was having very distinctive visions. Like like I could see them coming through the doors. I knew they were coming. I would wake up. I would go get some of the other kids, the ones that were closest to me, and we would go hide. And that was in my saving grace. And um, I had been having, this is the one of the, this, the things that I bring up in the book, is that when I was in high school, I kept having a dream. And I'd been having flashes of this dream enough as it growing up, like really tiny bits of this, that I was like, something's going on there. And then one week I had it three times in a row. And it was the one of me getting out of my crib and climbing down the side and going to find my mother. And... And she was having a very, very messy, very scary thing. You know, miscarriage happened in the bathroom and my screams brought um, help. And when I brought it up to her, she said that they said that to never bring it up to you because that it, it was actually impossible for you to remember because you were too young. And I remember having the dream. I remember waking up. I remember getting out of the crib. I remember holding onto the wall because I could barely walk and finding her. And I remember everything visually. Um, I'm a visual. My memory is very visual. You're so lucky. I can barely remember what I ate this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't. That's why one of the reasons why I called it Memory Mansion because not was not only was that the nickname I had given it as a, as a kid, but my I have an unusual memory. But I also I also was picking and choosing things. I'm not I'm not trying to remember things in reverse in the same way that a lot of people do, where they're like, oh, it's kind of vague. Like these were memories that I sort of I boxed up and labeled and stuck in Memory Mansion. Mm-hmm. I can barely remember what I shit, really, to be quite honest. You want to know something interesting? Since I've healed, my memory now is not nearly as good. Really? How come? (laughs) Well, I think it was a trauma response, to be honest. Ah, yeah. You've totally torn down that mansion, put it up for sale, and given it to some Get it out of here. I want to move. (laughs) Now, speaking of moving, you told earlier that you moved all the way to California. Mm -hmm. How do you find yourself to be so bi-coastal? New York, California, other parts of the United States? Like, at such a young age, how are you getting to all these places? Were you just, like, uh, hitchhiking? No, no, no. 
You're funny. No, no. Back then it wasn't, you know, see, everyone thinks of the world as the way it is now because security is such a big deal. But back then you could, you could buy a ticket to another part of the country, get on a plane and nobody was going to go, you know, unless, unless you were running from the CIA, you were fine. But uh, yeah, I took off for California. I dyed my hair blonde. Hot. And yeah, and I married the first the first man that I came You're across. Married. I'm not even kidding you. We it, it was it was like oh you'll do. I was I needed to hide. <laughs> you'll do. <laughs> I was, well, I was scared and, and I was scared and I needed to hide and I needed to, to to change my name. And I was like, how do I? I didn't even know how to begin to do that legally because these things things have changed. And people take a lot of things for granted now because we've got the internet. But back then, you had to actually figure shit out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. Do you remember some of the names that you've used? Uh, yeah. Cynthia Lucci was one that, that, uh, that I remember, uh, using. And then, you know, I got married again later on, which was easy. That's the the name that I did my career in. And I've never, I never even used Cynthia Elliott, which is my actual name until two, about two years ago when I was getting through the rest of my spiritual awakening. And I was like, okay, girl, you probably should change your name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I found out he died too. This is the foster father that I lived with that spied on me. Like, you know, I have a whole story about realizing that I was being watched through peepholes in the book. And uh, anyway, yeah, I was, I was like having visions of just burning his world to the ground. I was going to get back at him. I was going to tell everybody what he did to my sister, him and the other men. And I was going to find out, you know, I finally got up to, I finally got over the fear. I didn't realize how scared I actually was until I looked at it in reverse. You know, from, from some of the experiences that you've had that, that it's hard for other people to understand unless you're in survival mode. So you're suppressing a lot of your, the emotions that you're supposed to actually feel. Yeah, no, I can totally relate because what I found out in therapy was that in the four years that I was an escort from the ages of 19 to 23, I was basically compartmentalizing on steroids, like just isolating all of the feelings that were bubbling up just to focus on work because I then found out about myself that I was doing sex work as a trauma response from being sexually assaulted. Oh, wow. Right? It was was so, like, eye-opening that, like, oh, because I was sexually assaulted, the only worth that I can find myself in is as a sex worker because apparently I'm so good at that, I might as well get paid for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was so wild. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Yes. What's up, all you sick fucking perverts? Don't you just love love? The Love Shop has everything you need to feel the love in the air or in between your legs, wherever you want, really. They've got everything from vibrators, lubes, laundry, and even full-sized sex dolls. <laughs> Wow, I guess love really does come in all shapes and sizes. Visit loveshop.ca slash sexedwithtim and use code sexedwithtim at checkout for 15% off the whole store. And the best part is that they ship all over Canada, US, and what? Ireland? To all my whores in Dublin, top of the morning to ya. <laughs> That's loveshop.ca slash sexedwithtim and check out code sexedwithtim for 15% off the entire store. Now get... To fucking. Do you like feeling sexy and looking sexy? Of course you do. Only my listeners are sexy as fuck. 
I have partnered with fetishwear designer Dale Kuda to bring you the hottest deals on custom jock straps, harnesses, hats, and more. Head over to dalekuda.com, that's D-A-L-E-K-U-D-A.com, and use code SEXEDWITHTIM at checkout for 25% off the entire store. Yeah, you heard me. 25% off. And cherry on top. Free shipping. Oh my god. I have a few of the stuff that he has made for me. And girl, I'm wearing it right now. I'm wearing like a little jock strap so that I could easily just like slip a little butt plug or dildo every now and then here and there. And I'm on the train. I'm just like, uh, 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 thank you, Dale. <laughs> That's dalecuda.com with the code SEXEDWITHTIM for 25% off your entire purchase with free shipping. With a deal like that, I swear I could come buckets, honey. <laughs> the show is about to begin. Yes. Going back to your story, these trauma responses and then your ability as an intuitive is that i said mm-hmm. yeah intuitive yeah like what were some of the telltale signs that oh okay this is a trauma response oh okay like i should probably keep an eye out for anything like outside of human trafficking mm-hmm. like what were some of the other things that you were experiencing that were like okay this yeah is i knew up. i knew i didn't realize that i i mean i knew that i had post-traumatic stress disorder it was impossible not to have with the things because i i've had motors i've had so many accidents it's not even funny i've shattered my leg and all these you know just a ton of you know like i knew like it, it would ha- it would be almost impossible not to have after running all that time and not using my real name and the shame and the guilt and all of that um, it, things like, um, I carried a knife for, for a really long time. Like t- I want to say it was 20 years. I've never sat down and just listed it out, but I carried it and I learned how to use it. I knew how to kill somebody. Like I taught myself oh, how to just, kill so someone. Hot. At a, that's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> you're so funny. It but really you know, is. I was scared and I, I was like, okay, I had to ask myself as a young girl, I was like, if I got into a situation where they get me permanently, like meaning I'm stuck in the van or I'm, I'm like there for a, a long enough period of time that I know I'm not going to escape, I will kill somebody. Like I will, I had to ask myself, are you capable? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that, that you, if you need to save yourself or someone that you love that, that does, you know, if we all deserve saving, I must said deserve saving. No, for sure. It's self-defense. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I taught myself how to, to use a knife and I taught myself how to, to be very aware. I was so hyper aware. I know you know what I'm talking about. I scanned everybody's faces. I scanned every license plate. I watched every driver. I um, always had my back to a wall when I went into a restaurant or a bar. I was very careful not to leave traces of myself wherever I went. Like it was it was really like next level like I remember removing my hair from the floor of a I had had my hair cut and I got really pain it probably makes me sound like a, a crazy person but I had this I had this feeling that I was being watched and I had been a while since I had felt that feeling and intuitively like I could t- you know I think we're we're all since we're all connected and energy is very interesting to me as a shaman 
I think it's perfectly natural to feel things that are happening, to feel someone's looking at you. I mean, if you think of the observer effect in quantum physics, it makes total sense. But anyway, I remember gathering all the hair together because I was like, I don't, I I just got really panicky for a second. And I was like, what if they can figure out who I am? Are they going to, are they going to do something to me? Because I know what they did to my sister and all the other kids, you know? Um, And I, I was like, okay, this is, this is not normal behavior when, you know, grown women who have a healthy life don't sit in restaurants with their back facing a wall so that they can see the front door. You know, they don't clock every military man and every policeman that they come across because of the way that they walk. Like that's not normal behavior. That's so hypervigilant and so like invasive of your life. And it kind of like takes a hold of every aspect of your consciousness were those feelings that you were being watched accurate at all? Oh God, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The reason that was based on experiences, which I talk about in in the book quite a bit. One of the things, the reasons why I was so secretive for such a long time was because I was f- f- not only being followed, but told that I was being followed. And and the things that so like for example, I was making out with my high school boyfriend, and he was I was allowed to date him because they, I was told you're not allowed to have sex and you will, we will know if something happens. And then we will finally get a chance to go out on a date. And when I got back, he, my stepfather knew everything that I had done, like everywhere we went, uh, everything that I did that was notable enough. And he took great pride in telling me about this. And it was like, okay, you know, and so I started to pay attention. And I had been seeing men with cameras and binoculars since I was really young and in this situation, when I would go out on dates, there were no, a number of occasions when I saw men with binoculars and cameras and weird things happen. Like a, a, it's, it's, you know, I, I could go on and on because this was this was actually pretty intense in high school because not only was it being spied on in the house I was living in through peepholes, but when I did go out, he would know everything I did. And it was so weird. Like I remember making out with my boyfriend in high school and I was finally like, yes, I'm finally going to have sex. <laughs> I wanted to know about intimacy. So we go to a park and we're trying to make out. And all of a sudden a man appears right there with binoculars on and he's not leaving until we leave. And I'm telling my high school boyfriend who I'm sure he's probably going to be like, Oh my God, she wrote a book. Um, I was like, don't you think it was weird that the man with the binoculars came and stood almost on top of the blanket, the, the, the sleeping bag that we had and he just stood there and he wasn't there for like, it wasn't like getting excited or anything. He was like this, you know, with the binoculars, like, are you kids going to leave? And I was like, Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. I just want to have sex without oh being watched. God, I know it's why. Well, that's one of the reasons why I, I, now do you see why I was quiet for so long? Because when you start to tell stories like that, people are like, this sounds crazy. Like I have a lot of people ask me if it's, if it's a fiction book and I'm like, no, would somebody really wait until their fifties? I'm like, can you make this shut up? Like, and who would? I mean, I found it grossly embarrassing for a really long time. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry. I just like, as a joke, I'd say like, oh, I wish someone would do that to me because someone could finally choose me. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You're so funny. But that's how we finally. think, right? Yeah. That's all. I think I mean, that's honest, right? <laughs> It is also like a trauma response. I use comedy as a self defense. Yeah, that figures as blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the fact that you knew that already. Yeah, really. Okay, well, <laughs> read me the filth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I help people deal with with uh, healing is one of the things that I focus on because I had to heal a lot of that stuff. You know, it was a lot. It was a lot. And that's the way that I heal and also help 
other people heal is through the power of comedy because when you laugh you feel a lot better and like when you laugh at this traumatic thing it's almost like you're giving or you're taking away the power of that traumatic thing and it's almost like you're you're squashing it it's like all right you mean nothing to me anymore uh i wanted to also ask you about your first time getting intimate because i feel or at least what i'm feeling right now is that in the face of so many traumatic experiences especially with men what was it like for you to get intimate with another man you know i have to say i was very protective it was as like i said i was an adult in a very young little body i mean even as a toddler i remember you know i, I won't get to all that it'll distract things but i remember you know having very adult conversations with myself and i i was i read a rosemary rogers book when i was a kid my mother i watched my mother hide it on a shelf and i had to go see what it was and when i read it i was like oh well hello you know that sounds like something <laughs> i can do and so my first my first sexual experiences were self pleasure and i became and i and when i realized i was like okay wait a minute i can do this myself which by the way at the time the doctors would tell you as a woman that that was impossible. And when I tell that to people, they don't believe me. And I'm like, why would I make that up? I've repeatedly tried to have conversations about self-pleasure with doctors. And they were like, women can't do that. Only men can do that. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not sure what, what to do, what to say about what I have going on over here. Apparently I'm an anomaly. Um, but um, I had a very strong um, sexual, I had a strong sexual drive. And I also had a very protective, obviously, of myself. And um, I learned a lot about pleasing myself. And that allowed me to stay safe for a long time because I think I would have ended up in very unhealthy sexual situations if I hadn't had a strong sexual self-pleasure regimen. So the first time, I mean, it it was great, you know, in terms of like the first time I I got a chance to really make out, like basically in a closet. But, But once you've learned how to pleasure yourself, it if dealing with some fumbling teenager is not quite the same thing. (laughs) Honestly, even as an adult, I would rather jack off than find some (laughs) gross man off the street and be like, Hey, do you want to have mediocre sex and not call me tomorrow? (laughs) Oh my God. You're so funny. You're like, I'd just rather do it myself. Honestly, I'm a DIY fucker. (laughs) I I would rather just masturbate and put on some, I don't know, Michael Bolton on vinyl and light a scented candle than like, hey, you, you'll do. (laughs) Go to the bar and just say you'll do. Uh, It's just so awful. But I I was wondering about like, you know, besides the self-pleasure, what was the intimacy aspect like with another person for the first time? I had difficulty trusting their motivations. I thank goodness I had a sexually active older sister because I saw some of the mistakes that she made and the way that, you know, that it went, especially back then, anybody who was sexually active in the, this was like the late seventies, early eighties, things were a lot different back then. It allowed me to be very cautious and careful, but I was nervous. You know, I was nervous around men. I was nervous to trust, uh, trust men. And apparently I'm a narcissist magnet. (laughs) (laughs) oh my god please tell me narcissist magnet how 
are you attracting all of these narcissists? <laughs> well, I'm, a, I'm an, an intuitive empath that I've recognized patterns. One of the reasons I ended up becoming a PR pioneer was simply because I was good at pattern recognition and I could see the direction things were headed in. So like influencer marketing came out of my pattern recognition. Uh, as an intuitive empath, we're like, you know, cream you know, to somebody who's looking <laughs> ice cream, I should say, uh, to somebody who's who likes to be around uh, uh, people who have anytime they I think narcissists are very attracted to people who have gifts that they can sense. And if you are intuitive, and you can see patterns, that's a great gift to have, especially if other people are comfortable around you and like you narcissists like that. It's a tool in their arsenal. Like if you are the gifted one, I think a narcissist is going to be like, Oh, I want that because it's going to make me, you know, feel like I have everything in the world. And it's like, ugh, it grows. I've dealt with my own bullshit of narcissists. It's like, why, <laughs> why did you make this about yourself? And I'm not even kidding. It was narcissism on a physical level. I was having sex with this guy. And for whatever reason, he kept fucking me on a very specific angle. Turns out he was fucking for a camera. I was like, What? <laughs> He didn't tell you. No, he didn't. The number of times that I've been caught on camera and like I did clock them. So I was like, you better delete that. I'm not leaving here until you delete that. But the fact that he was fucking me because he was performing, I was like, wow, that's about as narcissistic as it gets. As it gets. I mean, it's one thing if you guys are like have been together a little bit and you want to get use a can like use a mirror for some fun, but yeah, he was performing for himself. Oh yeah, like I, I understand because like he's got a hot bod, he's an MMA fighter, whatever. Okay, but like you, the bare minimum in that situation was like at least fucking ask me if you're gonna you know record. <laughs> All right. Did we forget basic human decency here? Like, my God. Uh, now Isis, I want to kind of not so much gloss over all of that trauma but rather in your journey i don't know if you wrote about it in the book but i was wondering then after all of that like orphanage and human trafficking stuff and then moving to california getting the fbi involved where do you start to see it kind of you know get better well, you know, it, what's cool about the book is that when I got to New York City, I fell into this really glamorous job and I ended up going into public relations and working in the fashion industry and dressing people for the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes and uh, worked with a, a real laundry list of incredible people across everything from design to art as Adina Laya and, you know, Ian Schrager and these really incredible people across the industry. And so the book shifts back and forth, you know, the way that it's written, it, it flips between decades. So you might read about the orphanage and then the next chapter you read about me dressed, you know, creating the eyewear for the cast of Sopranos when I, uh, a few years, when I, a few years after oh my first getting to New York you City. You got to meet Edith Falco? Um, no, 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 no. Oh. I did. Uh, at the time, Lorraine Bracco and James Gandolfini were the, the biggest stars that I uh, dressed is what we call it. And, uh, you know, I might be dressing somebody for a major award show or, or orchestrating an event for a huge, you know, one of my clients was a sponsor of New York, LA and Miami Fashion Week. So for years, I oversaw the sponsorships. Um, big is a big sponsorship too. At all of those fashion weeks all over the country. Uh, and there were, you know, that's six a year right there. Um, so, you know, it, it's not that it's like I, I soften it by taking people from, you know, this 
incredible. And I don't just write about trauma because a lot, I had a lot of wonderful adventures. I would sneak out of the orphanage and go running around Memphis. And I share those kinds of stories and free running through this, the downtown area of Memphis. And then I might flip to being in the New York City in the 90s and the 2000s and some of the really incredible work that I got to do. And then I, you know, I, I, of course, flip back to in my fifties, uh, early fifties, I was 50, 51, when I finally said, I had a long conversation. My hair turned white from the stress of just being so, so secretive because I was afraid of being judged and people saying, oh, she must be crazy or well, fuck off. You know, it's like, you know what? I don't even care anymore. Like we can think whatever you want. Don't care. You know, at this point in my life, it's like I, I worked, I waited a really long time to actually, you know, heal and share my story because of that judgment. And uh, I wanted to be able to, to carry people through, not see my life as a tragedy to see my life as a glory that not only did I learn along that way, but I, I've tried to package it in a way that I'm sharing the lessons that I got from all of this. All of that trauma is not wasted. I learned a ton and I share those lessons along the way that the observations that I made and, you know, um, waking up eventually and realizing that, you know, my hair was turning white because I was so stressed and it was time for me to lose the weight that I had gained in my 10 years of depression and to time for me to come out and, you know, your secrets keep you sick and shame and guilt are on the lowest registers of human consciousness. And it's only when you decide that you don't want to exist in those lower registers, fear-driven living, survival mode, um, that you can finally elevate your life and learn to live in a blissful experience and choose your reality. Mm -hmm. Did you remember a very specific time where you were like, fuck this lower level of consciousness. It's time for me to glow the F up. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. My tea, you'll laugh, but I was trying to launch a sustainable collection and it just, I could not get it off the ground before the closures were coming. And, um, and then my, I had, I, I used to ride Harley's um, motorcycles for a really long time. And, uh, I fractured both of my front teeth in New York city in the very late, I think it was 99. And the same, at the same time that I was launching, finally got a chance to launch that collection. Uh, both of my front teeth came out. And that was one of those like brutal, like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. I'm trying, this Both. collection is the bane of my existence. You know, oh, not only could I not get it sure. off the ground for two years, it just sat in a warehouse cut, but not sewn. But then my t when I finally did get the collection, was launching it, both of my front teeth here fractured in half because I had broken both of them. Uh, and uh, they came out and, and, and then all of a sudden my spiritual awakening just went off the chain. Um, from your two front teeth yeah, getting honestly, shattered? Honestly, I kind of wonder, like, this is going to sound crazy to people, but I kind of wonder if the, you know, because there's, you know, our pineal gland, I was like, I don't know, maybe it's helped activate it or something. But uh, yeah, that was that moment where I was looking in the mirror like, I have no front teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I can't get this fucking brand off the ground. My hair is turning gray and I'm missing two half of one tooth and the other tooth and I can't get it fixed because the coronavirus closures are going on. It was, it, you know, it was great for me in terms of that. That was a moment of ego, like, because our ego is really, it's, we need it, but it is, it is the thing that drives us to so much unhappiness. And, it, and if you want to get your ego broken, I highly recommend losing both of your front teeth at 50. <laughs> Get, lose both of your teeth, get your eyebrows singed off. Right, like, yeah. Oh my God. So I think like what I'm getting from that story is that like everything just turned to shit and you kind of had to find your rock bottom to start going up. 
Oh yeah, right? I, I was implied, and I've left out a huge part of the story. In my in my forties, after I had a series of really severe traumas, like I shattered my leg, got divorced. It was two thousand and eight, so I had, we had to sell the house because we were getting divorced, and we the both of us weren't going to live there. So it was like we had to sell it at a huge loss. And my mother had died, my sister was dying, and I was drinking incredibly heavily. I had become very self destructive because I didn't know how to deal with what, everything that had happened, and I didn't have the right um, practices in my life to live you know, blissfully. I didn't under, even understand, uh, you know, I felt like I had a right to be angry. I was in victim mode. I was in survival mode. And I made a lot of time, a lot of mistakes, which is one of the reasons why I kept running. Cause at that point I had stopped really running from the, from human traffickers and the being spied on. And I had started running from myself and the mistakes that I made. And so it took me 10 years of being depressed and, and gaining weight to finally get to a place where I was ready to actually face all of that. Isis, you are amazing. Uh, we're coming up to the end of the show. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. And I was wondering, if it's possible, could you maybe read a few pages of your book? A few paragraphs or something. You mean this bad boy right here? That bad boy right there at the ready? Oh my God, hello! <laughs> You know, I'm really excited because I, I uh, just to, just on a side note, I got the hard cover and I got the soft cover and and uh, it's been exciting. So I will read the first I'll read the opening of the book because I think that's really helps lay the groundwork. Um, all right, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, Isis reading Memory Mansion. Thank you, Tim. Memory Mansion, How to Glow the Fuck Up by Shaman Isis. Chapter 1, age 23, San Diego. The light on my answering machine was blinking. I rarely receive messages at home. I walked over and hit play. Hey, Cindy, hopefully you recognize my voice. I wanted to warn you that people are looking for you again. I'm sure it's because every hair salon around Tennessee has a poster of your face. I was surprised the first time I saw it. Paul Mitchell, wow, I'm glad you're doing well, but I think the poster has given your location away. You asked me to call if anything like this ever happened. Now may be a good time to get lost, the message said. Shit, I dropped to the couch. Weird things have been happening lately. People were following me. I almost always knew. It came from a lifetime of practice. One of the many reasons I didn't let anyone get too close to me. Deep down, I felt stained by my history. I should have asked more questions about the modeling job I had booked. At 5'7", with brown hair and brown eyes, I was fortunate to secure the gig. Exotic wasn't popular at the time. It turned out to be a national ad campaign. The company had shipped my poster to almost every damn salon in the country. God, I was finally starting to like San Diego. It was time to run again. I would have to get more creative in the next city. I could try Los Angeles, but I was not a fan. People are obsessed with what you do for a living. I preferred to avoid people asking me questions designed to determine my usefulness. Ooh, what? Isis. <laughs> oh my God. That is, ooh, I got chills. I got some goosebumps. Oh, good, I good. am ready to buy this book. For all of you wondering, this book is coming out this Saturday, February 3rd. Remember the name. It is Memory Mansion, Glow the Fuck, How to Glow the Fuck Up by Shaman Isis. Now, as I end every show, Isis, I always ask the guest, can you please make like a butt and plug away anything you want the audience to find? <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. 
Oh, your eyes love you. I could, you and I could just keep talking. I could see that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, you love. Right? You can um, pre-order, uh, although it's only two, it's coming out in two days, but uh, it's been on pre-order for a couple months. It comes out in two days, but you can pre-order it to get it into your Kindle on Amazon. And you can also order it on Barnes & Noble. Um, you can order the print and hardcover issues on um, most of the major websites um, starting on February 3rd. I love it. And where can people find you online and your social media? Absolutely. I am. Um, you can visit shamanisis.com and there you will see my podcast, The Shaman Isis Show, as well as links to all my social media and links to my books as well. I'm pretty active on TikTok and X is um, a platform I spend a lot of time on. I host a lot of live spaces there um, for people that are mindfulness and spiritual based. And I also do a live streaming. I do a live stream on X with Billy D's most Thursdays. So lots, lots to find there. Amazing. And everyone, just one more time. It is this Saturday, February 3rd, Memory Mansion, How to Glow the Fuck Up by Shaman Isis. Thank you. Everyone, thank you, Shamanisis, for coming on the show. Nama, stay the fuck up, everybody. <laughs> Glow the fuck up, people. Exactly. Thank you, Tim. You've been a doll. I enjoyed talking to you. You've been an absolute pleasure, Shaman Isis. And for everyone that made it this far into this chaotic-ass conversation, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe because you are supporting sex ed content, queer content, and if you don't, you're a homophobe. I'm sorry, I don't make the rules. <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to another episode, and I will see you all at the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. Sex Ed with Tim is created and produced by me, Tim Lagman. Music is Aces High by Kevin McLeod. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at GaySlutClown and at Sex Ed with Tim. You can also like and follow me on the Sex Ed with Tim Facebook page. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for all your support, you dirty little slut. Mwah!